0: Pine. Copper. Lime. Hello, print friends, and welcome to a very special rebroadcast episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release weekly podcasts with people in the print world who are doing something a bit beyond the expected. So please subscribe on your podcast listening app of choice. You can find Pine Copper Lime on Instagram and Facebook. And you can also sign up for our monthly newsletter with print news from around the world, all at PineCopperLime.com. We also have a Patreon page, where supporters can join up at tiers that start at just a dollar a month. And they all help to keep bringing you printmaking content every week. You can also get thank yous, like stickers and totes, and if that sounds like something you're interested in, you can check out the link in the show notes. Also, if you're not interested in that, because even the idea of having one more thing you need to give your money to is super damn fucking stressful, uh, just ignore that request and uh, enjoy the show. Print friends, you may have heard, it is the talk of the town, that Pine Copper Live finally has merch. Didn't get what you wanted for these past holidays? Well, now you have your chance. We have stickers, totes, shirts, and onesies all with our logo on it, but we did not stop there. Do you love that Hieronymus cock? I mean, who doesn't? He was a 16th century Flemish publisher who was instrumental in the history of printmaking. And don't you just get goosebumps thinking about him working with some of those greats like Peter Bruchel the Elder? Well. Now, thanks to your friends at Pine Copper Lime, you can get a sticker or even a shirt that tells the world you love that Hieronymus cock. Just check out the link in the show notes. Printmaking forever. Shun the non believers. Pine Copper Lime is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been bringing you a diverse range of high quality products to your creative practice since 1997. But we all know those products do not use themselves. That's why Speedball works with a fantastic lineup of contemporary printmakers who make up the Speedball team of demo artists, like Eliana Rodriguez, a lead instructor at the Roots and Wings School for Art and Design, and the student representative on the board for the Southern Graphics Council International Printmaking Conference. Eliana's favorite products are Speedball's Akua Intaglio inks, which come in a variety of vibrant colors that can be left out on a printmaking plate without drying up and easily clean up with just soap and water. So, if you want to learn a few tricks of the trade, head on over to Speedball's YouTube channel and see how it's done with great demo artists like Eliana. There's a link in the show notes. This episode is also brought to you by McLean's Printmaking Supplies. Our editor, Timothy Pauschak, just updated his tool roll, actually, with the Futatsu Warohangito 3mm carving knife. Most of us know how to go at a block with a chisel, but if you've ever seen a yuki oe block with your very own eyes, you know those lines come with a variety of tools, maybe most importantly, a knife. And, lucky for our editor, McLean has resources to show exactly how to hold your new tools to keep your hands and joints safe and comfortable and keep you carving for years to come. So, head on over to iMcLeans.com to find your new favorite tool and learn something new today. Print friends, I hope you are enjoying the close to 2020. It has been a big year for PCL and we have gained quite a few new listeners and this, our second year. So, to celebrate, I'm going to dive back into the PCL archives for this week to share with you an old gem that, if you're a new listener, you may have missed, and if you're an old listener, you may have missed something in it. This week's episode is my chat with Katherine Polk. This conversation remains the number one visited page on our website since it aired way back in November of 2019, and with good reason. Catherine is our patron saint of lithography, and let me tell you, she does not disappoint. She's going to talk with us about growing up in her church-going household in Memphis, her multi-decade hiatus from art-making, returning to art in her late 50s, and developing her incredible aesthetic. So, sit back, relax, and prepare to be drawn back into that Tennessee Smoky Mountain trance with Catherine Polk. Hi Catherine. how's
1: it going? Oh, hey. It's going great. Just uh, took a little break out of the studio and um, thought I would talk to you for a minute. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so
0: much for joining me. I, I actually, this is the first recording I'm doing that is sort of post one year anniversary of the podcast. And Oh,
1: congrats. Thank you. Wow, that sounds great. Amazing. So you did it on Halloween a year ago?
0: It was so uh since I'm in Australia it's November first. So we're a little bit ahead. Oh yeah.
1: Okay. All right. Well that is amazing. Yeah, I, I checked you guys out and it's quite exciting. You know, it's a great group of people you've spoken with so far and I'm so honored to be a part of this. It's pretty flattering. Thank you. Well, you were definitely on my list
0: kind of from the beginning uh, when Tim and I were first sitting down and thinking about, okay, who do we want to talk to? So um, I think it feels very (laughs) appropriate that I finally got you on now and we can can chat. So this is great. I know your work by reputation and I think by mutual friends and acquaintances and colleagues, but of course, also SGCI as well. But just for anyone who's listening who might not be as familiar with you, would you go ahead and let us know who you are, where you are, and what you do?
1: Sure. Um, My name is Catherine Polk. It's my middle name. I can always tell if someone's notifying me by my first name that it's not a friend. But it confuses people because I use Ella as my first name quite a bit for business or working with the banking or anything like that. But anyway, it's Catherine Polk uh, (laughs) with a K. And I originally am from Memphis, Tennessee. I was born there, and that was a long time ago. That's where I met Andy Polk, and we uh, sort of have moved around a bit from Tennessee to North Carolina and then to um, Indiana, we were, He went to grad school, and I followed him to grad school at Indiana University. And then um, we went to Tucson, Arizona. So we've sort of been back and forth, and now we're back in Indiana in a small town called Salisbury. And it's out in the country, really far out, so far down a gravel road. Take a right at the concrete factory, and you're there. So it's really really over the hills and through the woods, but we love it. Very contrasted to living in Tucson, Arizona, where we moved from. And um, it's also very different. So we're adjusting to the weather and things like that. Like it's pretty cold for us right now, today. Other than that, we've moved our press and our press name is uh, Elvis Press and that's because I was born in Memphis. It seemed appropriate. Cute. You know, I have always wondered how to say it. <laughs> well, you spell it differently. We didn't want to do it, you know, E-L-V-I-S, but we do capital L space,
2: V-I-S,
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> for Elvis Press. And we kind of lay low because we, when we told people that, they started sending us all these Elvis stuff, you know, <laughs> memorabilia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we so we sort of said no no it's not that kind of thing but we just felt we had to do it because of the memphis connection and anyway so now we're printing just about all day long and i probably i just finished stripping an edition of prints i'm curating them now so Mm -hmm. it's pretty convenient to have your studio about 20 feet away from the house so it's our dream i think Probably were the last stop, I guess, is what you might
0: call it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, what brought you from Tucson, you know, to, to the rural country life? That's that's a pretty big move because you guys were in Tucson for for a
1: while, correct? Yeah, it was over 30 years. So we were fairly well um acclimated I guess to the desert and I, I think my age you know I have to be honest I was born in the 50s and not many people say that anymore so <laughs> it tells you that we really wanted to make a decision to be closer to our family and we have two children um, a son and a daughter our son's in Chicago and our daughter is in Bloomington mm, Indiana mm-hmm. so that's only eight miles from this house and that way we can be closer to family because Arizona was so far away that it would be twice a year, believe it or not. I mean, I know you're in Australia, <laughs> but, but it's harder to just drop over, you know, when you're three days drive.
0: So one of the things that my husband and I talk about, cause of course, you know, we're both American and both of our families are, are in the States is that honestly being, being in Sydney, We still see them about once a year. It's kind of just like being across the country in a way because America is so large and it's so hard to get time off and funds to do the travel. And that distance is real and it's, it can be hard to be separated.
1: It's not as central. And that's so funny that you were from Tucson for a a minute. I I guess you were there three or four years. Yeah, we were there. Yeah. I think
0: (laughs) we must have crossed over Definitely. (laughs) We've
1: seen each other at a hall somehow, but um, yeah, Tucson's a a beautiful, bizarre place. In many ways, it's it's so surreal, you know, to live there. And I had oriented a lot of my work based around a lot of the survival icons of living in a desert, Mm -hmm. you know. And so, when I moved, I sort of had to shift some of my thinking and my work because. My work is all about the narrative and the things that surround me, the environment and things, as well as women. But yet, I always like to take into consideration, for example, I determined that my totem was the cactus wren,
2: uh-huh.
1: you know, when uh-huh. when I was in Arizona, because, you know, I would always look at the flora and the fauna, and I realized that there is this amazing bird, the cactus wren, that makes it. Its nest and the choya cactus. and it's so indicative of survival. <laughs> it's a harsh environment, but very secure in that it's protected itself with with the things that are very off-putting, you know, to any other creatures. and so I really love the nature of this bird anyway. that that's one example of one of the many things that I adopted you know, when I was in uh, Mm -hmm. Arizona and uh, some of the symbolism I would use like the prickly pear. So when I moved here, it was a whole big shift in environment as well as community was different Mm -hmm. because we're so isolated. And I think we had a, an apartment before we bought our house and the the insects that presented themselves to me. Were, <laughs> I have never seen it in my life. It was pretty intimidating. <laughs> and I, I thought, okay, we had our, you know, uh, scorpions in yeah. Arizona. Here we have this thing. I guess it was something like a centipede. I don't even know what it was. Mm. But it presented itself to me the first night I was in Indiana again. And so it had to show up in my work, of course. And it yeah. represents a lot of. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> so I like to put little centipedes in my work now.
0: That's really, that's really interesting because I was pretty intimidated by the insect visitors when I moved to Tucson. I, I remember really distinctly one night I was working as I was there for graduate school. So I'm there working late and I'm at my desk and I just I see this insect, maybe about as long as my thumb, maybe about, half as wide some kind of beetle type (laughs) creature just crawling up the wall and i just remember thinking like what now arizona like
1: what now (laughs) yeah my first night my first day in arizona we were moving in and a bark scorpion crawled out in the guest bedroom that we had and the same very night it, there was a tarantula on our porch <laughs> oh my gosh. and I, I was freaked out because I had two smaller children when we moved there oh, and yeah. I thought is this place is safe oh, yeah. and it was sort of like oh what have we done now And but we were fine you know you just sort of survive and I think just like everything they don't want to have anything to do with you for the most part And so you just kind of keep your peripheral going yeah. <laughs> watch for things one other thing that presented itself when I moved to Indiana was I had this thing, this horrible rash on my hands mm. right down by my wrist. And I thought, oh, my stars, what on earth? And it was frightening. And it apparently was happening repeatedly on and off. And finally, we realized it was in streaks and it was poison ivy that was all over the property oh my gosh and, and I was gathering uh wood for the fireplace you know for kindling and stuff and and I was getting poison ivy oh my gosh <laughs> <laughs> and I must be more reactive than my husband Andy and uh-huh. it's like okay okay these centipedes and the poison ivy what else yeah you know, just bring it Bring yeah, it on, exactly. I'm okay. <laughs> but the poison ivy's now in my work, and that's usually the way it works. So I, I think it's there for some reason for mm-hmm. for my interpersonal growth or something. I don't know.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Because <laughs> you were saying that yeah. you that you grew up in Tennessee. So, growing up there, were you outside a lot? Was, you know, because you're talking a lot about this interaction you're having with nature. Were you an outdoor kid? Were you an artsy kid? Sort of tell me a little bit what that was like.
1: I was very active outdoors and I had all these insects and plants similar to these in Indiana, but I think being transplanted and all that. Time in Arizona for over thirty years. I'd forgotten my instincts and, you know, to avoid things. So, as a small child, though, I, I was very average.
2: You know, I had,
1: I wasn't pretty. I wasn't, um, you know, anything special. I didn't feel it. With exception, maybe that art became sort of a tool for me to kind of communicate. Mm very early on and I mean as early as three I was drawing quite a bit and my mother was an artist and I admired her a lot and would watch her draw um and because of this religious part she drew at her church and would do bible stories and draw them while she told these stories yeah I was just fascinated uh-huh. by the whole idea of it of course I translated that to I was doing 45 record songs and 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 drawing to those of course (laughs) rock and roll which probably really disturbed her but anyway (laughs) I think um it was watching her draw as a young child everything I, I played with my food I was a very um I would personify everything like numbers and and silverware um you know where I Everything had gender. Mm. It was weird. It was like, I guess my imagination was different from my brothers and sister. And so, and I was left alone a lot. And I think not alone alone, there was actually someone there working um, in our house. And, but I, my parents weren't there quite a bit. So I was left on my own to entertain myself. And I, The other thing I think um, that might relate to my being an artist is, this is going to sound so negative about religion. It's not my intention. You know, I think people have to do and believe the way they want.
2: Yeah.
1: I believe in that total freedom, but I was taken to church a lot (laughs) and sitting still was not my thing and being quiet was not my thing, but I found that. To kind of get through a lot of this, I drew on everything or sketched Mm. at a very early age to kind of help pass the time, if you know what I'm saying. So I would manage to draw on everything that I could get my hands on because I had difficulty sitting still. Anyway, I, I I know that it did sort of open doors for me in elementary school. <laughs> uh-huh. And then, especially on up to high school, so I would where I felt I may not have been as academic as my my peers, I think I could definitely draw I could communicate that way. It really helped me a lot.
0: I think I hear a lot of artists talk about how art and just the ability to draw you know, was really a way to connect with people when they were younger, um, particularly if like a lot of us were just kind of like a weird little kid, (laughs) you know, like (laughs) little kids, they they've got that almost that animal instinct of, of like, oh, they're different you know like they can like kind of smell it you know <laughs> and then and oh, yeah. uh, it's a way to kind of bridge that though is to is they're like well but you know she can draw or like he can he can do whatever and i think that um that that positive feedback when maybe we're not getting a lot of positive feedback for other areas of our life really fuels mm-hmm. dedication that can last a lifetime
1: yeah it probably put all my focus on the thing that I got attention for but uh, I felt it was somewhat um, intuitive too Mm -hmm. and it was self-satisfying I mean it was the sort of as well as maybe getting me through things I felt like it it was um, cathartic in a way you know it would help me cope you know, things weren't run, going my way, I just drew all the time. So I could kind of lose myself in this little world I was always making. So, mm-hmm. And I, I did that. I had an imagination. It got sculptural. You know, any time I played, um, I built not just a little thing. I built a massive something. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: It, it, it kind of stood out in the neighborhood. I think people came by <laughs> to participate in my events. But it was that kind of imagination where it just was kind of an overstatement for kids i I think um I don't know i again I think i I don't know if I was overcompensating for the fact that I was very plain we didn't have a lot of money where I think there was peer pressure for nice clothes or ha- owning things. We didn't have that so. Mm-hmm. I had hand-me-downs, and I think they were hand-me-downs to my sister who gave me her hand-me-downs. So mm-hmm. it, it was quite a few out-of-date outfits where the elastic had worn out. My pants were always falling down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned drawing to 45s. Um And I know that music is still a part of the, your practice, like the actual – physical art making. Is that right? Oh my God. Yeah. how do you know that? Oh, I did. I did. I did some reading on you, Catherine. Like, <laughs>
1: <Okay>. <laughs> no, I, I've got a wound up. I, you know, I am wound up anyway. I, I'm a pretty wound up grown up. It's pretty amazing that, you know, I survived this long, but it's like, <laughs> when I work, I need everything working it's almost like orchestrated chaos, if that's possible. <laughs> I've got to have a pace that keeps me going or keeps me getting this particular task I'm doing done. Uh, whether it's tearing paper, grinding stone, uh, printing, you know, cranking through the press, it's nice to have the right music <laughs> uh-huh. at the same time.
0: So you've talked a bit about how you, like, you're always drawing, how you had that kind of influence of seeing your mother draw and really using art and making to connect with people. And, you know, I think one of the things that stands out at your work is your incredible draftsmanship. It's, it's really, really beautiful and really distinctive, but you, you came to lithography um, a bit late in your practice, or not? I shouldn't say late, but late, later than than some artists do. And I think anyone mm-hmm. who is, sees your lithographs, you know, looks like it. You must have been just like a fish to water. Um, but it wasn't until 2002 that you started making. Is that right?
1: Yeah, um, yeah. It's complicated, and I don't know how much time we have, but I'll try to say it quickly. <laughs> I I sort of took a, a long sabbatical from art. When I married Andy, I started working to sort of pay for things and um when we he was in grad school and so I got a job as an illustrator for a local newspaper illustrating um, mm. I think at the time it wasn't it wasn't budget store fashion, but it was actually things like mattresses and stuff, mm-hmm. so I drew strange things, but I could draw very fast yeah, <laughs> and i adapt to things pretty quickly so I did and they no one does newspaper ads the way they used to except in New York and LA but um, I did that for a short while and then I started moving into art direction because the people that were telling me how to do things and what to do sometimes I didn't agree with how I was being told to do something <laughs> so I figured the way to change that was to take their job somehow or become what they were and, So I kept moving up that ladder and went from illustrator to art director to creative director. And then ultimately, this is the one that surprises everybody. I was president of a company.
0: Really?
1: And we did. (laughs) Did you know that? I did not know that. (laughs) Okay. So for about 30 years, indirectly from the illustrator all the way up to running this company, we did... um, it's called Madden Media in Tucson, Arizona. you probably heard of them. I've heard perhaps. of them, yeah. So, yeah, I ran Madden Media. I was president of Madden Media. And we um, did back-end database solutions for Fortune 500 companies, which is hard to say in itself. But um, the idea <laughs> had I'd come so far away from doing anything creative. It was very much like a zombie in business and high-stress. Lot of pressure wasn't even doing creative, I was working with clients a lot, so I was pretty starved for something that I for my soul.
2: Yeah,
1: and um, I asked Andy, I said, I don't want to do this anymore as of today. (laughs) I said, Could you meet me at a restaurant and with the owner? The owner of the company was Kevin Madden, and I said, I'm going to resign and mm-hmm. I just don't know yeah. if I can do it. You know, leaving a a six figure salary is mm-hmm. a hard thing to do. Yeah. You know? And I said, I need drink to, to help me get those words out. Yeah. And he met yeah. me, he rode his bike over to some restaurant and I just said, you know, I, I can't do this anymore. I'm really not into it and it's really killing me and all yeah, this. So yeah. I left that job and then, um, thought, okay, I'm going to make art again. And Melanie Yazzie invited me to go on a trip with her to New Zealand. And Mm -hmm. um, while I was there, we stayed on a Mirai where it was all artists, but it was indigenous New Mm -hmm. New Zealanders and also all these artists from Canada and all over the United States, but they were indigenous people. So we were the only, you know, pakia or whatever you want to call Mm -hmm. it that were there and she said, Here, put a block in my lap with a carving tool and said, (sighs) Make a print, carve a block. And as of that moment, and that was right around two thousand two, I started carving on that. And I was so obsessed and I found, Okay, I love this and by the time I got home I had ordered up all these blocks I probably did I, I'm not kidding, I probably did 12 editions that month, the first month I got back and I was just so obsessive, Yeah. <laughs> and I sort of owe a lot to Melanie Yazzie but I don't think I carved as well as someone like Tom Huck or um, you know some of these other guys who carve. that I felt it didn't quite work for me the way that drawing did. Mm -hmm. And I always had this love for drawing. And um, I don't know if you're aware, but my sketchbooks are my main reason for living right now. Mm -hmm. And I felt like they sort of got me back into making art and, and discovering why I needed to make art again. So that I needed a type of vehicle, you know, if I went into printmaking with something Other than relief, what would it be? And because Andy Polk, my husband, taught lithography at the University of Arizona. I said, teach me lithography. (laughs) And he laughed. He he said, okay, sure, yeah. Uh I think he thought, yeah, right, I'll teach her and uh, that'll last a week. Well, he, about, I'd say six years later, we were standing together out, I think on the patio or something. And he said, boy, was I wrong. (laughs) (laughs) i had no idea that you would be as interested or as uh into it as you are but you said boy was i wrong if anything it's it's just i can't stop i love it and it it was like the dam burst and all this pent-up energy for those 30 years running and working in those companies Mm
2: -hmm.
1: i had an explosion it was this creative sort of explosion and It's not to say I I didn't do some pretty bad work. Oh boy, if i have used my hands on all that stuff I did in the first, I'd say six years, you know, I'd burn it with a match. I really would. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, things like, um, just staying with it and sort of trying to improve as I go, you know, just try not to get stuck, but trying to understand my content, you know, making the work that matters. And that, took me a couple of years to really hone in on why I mm. wanted to make work. Mm-hmm. Why I wanted to make art. And that was probably the biggest, hardest thing for me to re enter making art again was I felt like that pony that had been on a treadmill and gets turned out to the giant six hundred acres of pasture. <sighs> And you just don't, you're you're intimidated. You don't know what to do yeah. with that. And I, it took me a while and I had to make mistakes. But, and the thing that helped me the most was my sketchbook. Because those sketchbooks are your ticket to fail. I mean, you can just sketch all day long and do the worst stuff. <laughs> but what happens when you get all that worst stuff done, some of that good stuff comes in there. Or you get these little morsels of hope of, wow that makes sense and if I put that with this and mix that and that that makes more sense and you know it it just started it was a building tool for me kind of a jumping off place to get started with my art and then lithography you know the nature of lithography being able to draw on a stone and make multiples that look like my sketches and my drawings that was the very best Ever. Mm. and once I did that there was no going back I couldn't do relief I'm interested in doing etching or intaglio or, but I just don't feel like that those will do for me what lithography does mm-hmm. drawing on the stone and that love affair I'm having it, it's insatiable I can't get enough <laughs> I really physically dream it you know when yeah. you love something, don't you dream about it mm-hmm. and I realized for the first time I was an artist. I think it took me about ten years where I really accepted the fact that I must be an artist because I live and talk and breathe it yeah. all the time, and that 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 made me happy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not making six fingers. <laughs> But what good is all the money in the world if it drives you crazy? Right? Absolutely.
0: Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Anyone I know who's, who's you know, really lived that, that life where they're just, like, working and working for the money but making good money, you know, one of the things they'll say is that, like, you know, the only thing I have to show for it is, like, a J. Cruz cashmere sweater in every color. <laughs> like, that's it. You know, like, there's just no joy. There's no, like,
1: or, yeah. Or a you near they, it used to be Kooji from Down Under, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't even know. What that was, <laughs> back in the '80s, totally, totally. I remember that world. It was absolutely insane. I mm. mean, where my New York clients and I love New York. I truly do. I think the art there is amazing. But my clients really, really sized me up by my shoes, my watch, Mm. my pen, everything. And I felt my hair, everything had to be judged there. But I love my L.A. clients because they were so laid back. They didn't (laughs) even wear socks. And I thought they were the coolest people ever. um, And, you know, I did some pretty big accounts. I worked on electronic art in L.A., well, San Francisco. And I also, um, I worked on some big accounts. You know, I I worked with Gucci for a brief Mm. time, got to meet Dr. Gucci back in the (laughs) 80s. It was, I mean, as good as it gets, I guess, for that kind of world. But making art, that's the other thing. It's like I quit expecting anything back from it. Mm. And I Mm. honestly thought, okay, those were the wrong reasons to make the work. it's got to be something personal for making me care, what makes me care. And when I quit worrying about what people thought of me and what I should be doing or what I thought people thought I should be doing, when I quit doing that, things clicked. And the oddest thing was I think people actually noticed me more when I quit trying (laughs) in that way, you know, to please or to try to do what I – Trendy or whatever it was, and I, I I look back. I'm not. I'm shocked that anyone would care now, but I personally feel that it it fulfills a, a side of me that that sort of helps me cope. It helps me sort of expel demons, you know, mm-hmm. with what I'm living with. That I, you know, whereas I think in the past I might have just. I don't even know if I could have worked it out with my yoga. You know, it's just. <laughs> art's really it, it kinda does feed my soul now and I, I think when I don't do it I get this sort of feeling of deprivation where I am without you know, I'm starving mm-hmm. or something's not right if I'm not making it or if I travel or something. So I sound like a, an evangelist. <laughs> oh, I love it.
0: No, it's it's beautiful. I'm 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 so yeah, I'm so happy to hear that it I think I mean, I know that so many people hearing it will identify with that. And, you know, some of my favorite and most often or most common feedback that I get from the podcast is people will say they're listening to it alone in their studio, and they'll feel like they're not alone. And I think that, <laughs> you know, hearing someone like you speak so beautifully to just that need to to be creating and the catharsis you can get from it, I'm I'm sure will connect with a lot of people
1: that and that second chance. I mean, that sort of The idea that coming back to art at the age of 50, which I was 50 when I started making work again, um, you know, from undergrad, I left, by the way, I was at Memphis State University when it was called that at the time. And I left my junior year, so I never got my BFA or my MFA. And I'm really open and honest about it, even when I teach Mm -hmm. at a university. But um, not making art all those years and then coming at the age of 50 and making it and starting up again, I never expected it to be what it is today to me. You know, it, it just amazes me that, first of all, I'm able to do it all day long or that anybody... You know, getting invited to a school to talk to students, it's a huge honor. You know, when I talk to students, I'm so invigorated by the time I get home because of their passions and their excitement for their work. And it kind of rubs off, so it kind of keeps me fired up. And it's it's really fascinating to me to see the relationships in printmaking. You know, and I was a when for the brief time I was in college in undergrad, I was a painting major, and I never quite felt the community of that that I do in printmaking. Mm-hmm. And it, when I go to Europe or I travel, it's always you know checking out their printmaking community, and it's like we have this common bond mm-hmm. and this sort of tribal relationship through the medium, whether we even speak. French or not. You know, I just mm-hmm. got back from uh, Atelier La Grand Village and I, my French is horrible, but we, you know, they speak the language of printmaking. <laughs> it's yeah.
0: great. I mean, yeah. that's it's um, it is incredible how you know you show up anywhere in the world and if you can find a press, you can find your people. It's, it's amazing.
1: Yeah. yeah, it's true. It's yeah. really true. Yeah, And everybody listening might might feel the same way, too. It makes the world, you know, mm-hmm. not so big.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And really, I'd really love to chat about your really distinctive style, because I think you touched on it a little bit, that kind of development and how you sort of were like, I'm just going to make what matters to me and you have a really distinctive aesthetic that is um you know it can be kind of nostalgic or dreamlike or maybe a little vulgar even you know It, it has all of these different elements to it and you know you see a lot of these uh mid-century sort of dressed women, it looks like there's relationships between women, you know, sort of mother-daughter things. And I just would love to hear you talk about how you came to it and and what it is for you to work in that style.
1: Well, I definitely, when I returned to art making, I also tried to return to sort of getting to know my family. Uh, When I was in business, I worked 70-hour a week, so I was not very accessible. And I have to admit, I probably was not approachable either uh, because I was so busy. But as an artist, I kind of started wanting to understand where I came from more and relate more to who I was. And I think by knowing your family and trying to revisit, (laughs) which is we were slightly dysfunctional, so that wasn't easy to do. But um, my mother and I, very close, however. You know, we were not. We got along great. We never had a fight in my life. I don't think I ever fought with her. But, um, you know, the, the relationships between my sister and my daughter and her daughter and all of my cousins and family and all the women that I was getting to know in my travel, I became curious about how they functioned within their environment and what was going on to us in the um, microcosm to the macrocosm. You know, you want to see how the world's treating women in different places, but you also want to see how, why you are the way you are because of what you were Mm -hmm. or what affected you. So all of that, I just started making this sort of iconography of ideas and symbols of all these things that meant something. And I've reached a point where I've decided I better not tell all, I better not tell all my secrets, but you know, a lot of my symbols have a special meaning for me. And um, I think someone asked me in an interview what they meant. And I said, it's a secret, I'm not gonna tell you. (laughs) (laughs) But I also gave a lecture at one university and um, I actually answered a couple of questions and oh my gosh, I could feel the wind shear in the audience. (laughs) Because they they had no idea that that was what that meant. And I think that sort of darkness of dysfunctionality with my immediate family uh, always kind of seeps in a little bit. But also the treatment of women, how women are regarded. Mm. And I, one thing I, I say sometimes is, and, and let me mention something about what I'm doing visually. I, I never draw from photos because I feel like photos kind of really ruin it for me as far as the, the look and feel. I, I, I kind of almost strive for a a primitive memory of mm-hmm. what I think the body looks like. I, I think I do well in figure drawing if I have a model, but without a model, I have a tendency to interpret and with a primitive eye. It's almost as though I'm mimicking a Dick and Jane book a little bit, but it's not as good as <laughs> Dick and Jane. It's my own version of primitive. And I reached a point where I stopped fighting. You know, I I thought, well, this isn't pretty. I can do pretty if I really think hard about it. But I I decided not to fight that so much. So I really try to do these memory drawings and build up these symbols and see. But I choose these primary colors all the time and I build a lot of color from Mm -hmm. those primary colors, almost like a CMYK cyan yellow, magenta, and black. And I work with a key, meaning usually the black key first. Um, And the order of printing, I'll print my darts to light. A lot of lithographers print light to dark. I print dark to light Mm. because I like to be able to react as I go on the color. Mm. I also use tint-based ink so that I can overlap them. So I take those primary colors and sort of, for example, with tint-based ink, so I can get a, a green overlapping the yellow and the blue. So I, there's a kind of a process that I map out beforehand and try to keep it as simple as possible because I am not going to make it as laborious a, a process as it could get by overdrawing, except I do overdrawing. That's not what I meant. (laughs) But more of where I painstakingly do a very um, realistic or highly rendered piece. But I will try to do shortcuts when I can by overlapping colors, tinted colors. Or I'll um, think of ways that I don't have to run it through the press. If I'm doing 65 prints and I'm, I'm doing... Seven colors. It'd be great if it looks like it's twelve colors. But I think I I love color. I I love color, and I know there are people who simply make a living doing black and white prints. But I've realized that color—if it doesn't have color on it—I don't feel quite like it's complete for myself or my own personal style. Mm-hmm. Anyway, <laughs> I just oh, I was saying that that my teacher said I use monkey colors. <laughs> Monkey colors. and whenever I was told by a teacher or something, yeah, something like that, because they were primaries, and I wasn't mixing the color more or less, you know, where you like Chuck Close, I'd been told had two hundred skin tones mixed for him when he worked with his printers and and I would think, okay, I can get that with a leaf brown and a tint base a ten seventy five done. <laughs> So it's that simplicity of I don't want to get bogged down in that sort of laborious thinking about overthinking about it. So um, in that way, some people might not respect my how I go about it, but I, that's how I do it because I would rather be making my next print. You know what I'm saying? While I'm working on the one I'm working, on. so my head's already thinking down the road, and I I want it to stay fresh. I don't want the work to get you know, if you're around something too long, I think it can can wear you down a little bit. So I've always kind of appreciated a little bit of momentum in making the work, you know, a need for speed kind of thing.
0: I think one of the things that it speaks to is that you're doing this really fantastic work, but you're also quite prolific. And, you know, these beautiful images just seem to come out over, you know, and just like again and again. and And so I think... You speaking to your actual practice and also that that kind of, you know, keeping it simple because not letting it get stale, not letting it get overworked really adds, I think, this feeling of um, immediacy that is really dynamic in the images that you create. Oh, I love what you just said, Miranda. Could
2: you come
1: speak for me? I mean, I... I know I used to have to present to clients, but for some reason, as an artist, it's so much more personal, and I just stumble at the words. I don't think I can explain myself the way I might have, but that was beautiful. Um, Yeah, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: it's always it's always harder to talk about one's own work I mean it's just it is it's just a fact of life you know
1: are you making are you doing much printing yourself
0: so actually I'm I'm not a practicing printmaker myself I (gasps) I, oh. I know i know i'm 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 uh an interloper in this world a little bit but
1: <laughs> <laughs> when well, you say that now you say that now you're not even of age yet you're not 50 i'm sure <laughs> <laughs>
0: i love it I, you know i i really was thinking, I was like oh yeah i can start you know i've got I've got, an, I've got another 15 years to start my my practice
1: yeah yeah i i think that's appropriate too i um you know there are so many printmakers that i respect and look up to and i can't even tell you all of them and i hate to start listing and mentioning because i would leave someone really important out <laughs> but but i will say i'm quite interested in women and i think it's because that's my perspective you know mm-hmm. i i couldn't pretend to be it's almost like writing a book i couldn't write from a man's perspective and mm-hmm. i I don't know if I would even if I could produce work that I would feel as good about if it if I tried to, you know, go through a man's perspective. But it has really helped me kind of studying the lives of other women artists, you know, and mm. see what they're going through and um I I will mention one person. Minna Resnick was someone I got to know. Her father lived in Tucson. And I was so lucky that she hung out with me a few nights um, every month for for the last two years of her father's life. And I I was just so amazed at her wisdom, you know, as an artist, as a woman. And um, it was inspiring. And I thought, okay... I can do this legacy myself if it's if it's of any value to anyone. I'm I'm willing to share and and to men and women. It's not, you know, exclusive. It, it's something that I feel like we need to share mm. everything we can to help others, you know, get a leg up on what they're doing or trying to do. Yeah. Anyway, but Absolutely. she she was wonderful. She was brilliant. I don't know if you know men's work but yeah. um should be worth checking into. Definitely. You know, I think you know, one of the
0: the things that's really prominent and, um, you know, one of the first things that strikes people about your work is that it's, it it is is female-centered, you know, sort of, and and about a female experience. And, you know, so, of course, because of the way the world works, it's, you know, you make work about, or should I say you make work with male figures in it, you're just making work. You make work with women figures in it you're making feminist work, you're making work about this othering, like because the whole world, of course, is like male centric. It's, it's, you know, just to use female bodies as your default body, I feel like suddenly puts your work almost in an othered camp um, by its nature. And I just would love to hear you speak to that.
1: Well, interestingly, it is predominantly from my perspective, looking through women's eyes and the women, especially the women in my family. But there have been situations where I do also like to take away gender and mm-hmm. like to make it where you don't necessarily know if it's a man or a woman, because I feel that gender is a, a society's label and and there is no such thing, actually. I feel that we are what we are by birth and, and there's no way to change that mm-hmm. and so sometimes I actually prefer if my women or men or humans are not detectable, one gender or the other and I know that sounds a little odd to say yeah. but lately I have been dealing with that uh, in my work and I I won't mention particular prints, I'll guess for yeah. yourself but I started um, doing some of the poses when I was going to figure drawing. Um, they had an open studio where they had a live model. And you would just go and pay a fee and draw there in Tucson. And oftentimes I use a lot of my gesture of the ma- male figure for my women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and put on the um, patterns of the simplicity patterns of the 1950s, you mm-hmm. know, on this male figure. And, They really resembled more of women that I understood um, who worked a lot, you know, weren't necessarily from a fashion style kind of situation. And I just I'm liking to sort of not be so in black and white what's going on. I'd like to have a little more enigma, I guess.
0: You know, you, you were talking a bit about that idea of gender and gender in your work. And I think that luckily we as a society are moving towards a deconstruction of gender or sort of recognizing that, you know, gender is is a societal construct that we perform and that there's a, a spectrum and that there's all kinds of fluctuations and transitions and gray areas and, and all of it. And yet gender, particularly almost this like classical feminine prints and colors and styles of dress do come up in your work a lot. So it's just really interesting to hear that you definitely, you know, are in tune with obviously the fact that it's not a binary. And it makes me curious about the fact that you've got these sort of traditional aesthetics, traditional iconography, and yet, you know, you're exploring gender in a non-binary sort of 21st century way is really really interesting to me um and just maybe if you want to talk to that a bit
1: oh that's great um yeah i i was researching titles of songs and i was looking at one called out of the wardrobe by the kinks and i Mm. i love the idea of the superficial typecasting we do with our clothes and i'm i'm finding that that might be evolving You know, and the freedom to choose and be and do as you choose and how you appear and how you look is hopefully, you know, we're getting to a stage where that's accepted, Mm -hmm. um, that you just become a human being and you're probably going to hear. I have a, a hard time when I feel that people are alienated because of they don't fit apart mm. or they're made to feel as though mm. they are um, an outcast because uh, within especially family units I think can be the worst. And, and I, I won't mention specifics, but, you know, when you have family members that are not out, And and your heart breaks and you you just think, you know, I'm living out loud. Why can't you? And you want to support that. You want to support the fact that they're safe for being who they are and to live out loud. And so I I think when I deal with things in society or my family, I I do put it in my work. And again, I, I don't want to get into the specifics of the close family members or anything like that, but. I want people, I want in my work to speak to things that bother me. And there's, some, there's darkness in my work. And I know that I try to do this, what appears to be very childlike colors and even childlike poses and the way they're drawn, it's very childlike, uh, like a little book, children's book illustration on But um, there's a darkness. And I, right now I'm feeling a lot about our politics that mm-hmm. are pretty hard for my head and mm-hmm. the fact that society has all these rules that it casts on our children, as to how their behavior should be. And it, it's just hard. And I think, well, I can put it in my work and I prefer to have people see it and have it mean something to them on their own terms than for me to tell them how to see it. You know, they see what they see. And so if I put it there and it's subliminal or it's not as hit them over the head with a hammer what I'm talking about, I like that because it might mean more to someone who needs it to mean something else to them than what I had intended for it to be. So I want my work to have that sort of depth of freedom of, let's say, interpretation. I just don't want to tell them how to think
0: about it like the work that i find i respond to the most does live in that space between the specific and the mysterious and because that way the meaning is truly formed in the conversation between the creator the object and the receiver and that's i think when the real magic can happen with visual arts and
1: and when it's not as predictable and I, I'm sure people have no idea what some aspects of these symbols what they mean, but they might help them sort of have some kind of personal relationship with the work that I had not ever thought to do, and, mm-hmm. and it, to them it was something else. So, I like that. I like that idea. Yeah, I, I think that not always coming with instructions, and I, I think I have to watch myself because I think I slip into that sort of safe side of making work sometimes that gets formulaic and can kind of turn it out like a factory if I'm not careful, so that's something I try to safeguard and I think that going back to that sketchbook mm-hmm. uh, it kind of helps her to, to keep that stagnation away. I think that it really helps, especially the sketchbook flexibility get lets lets you react immediately to something. You know I can't grain my stone and draw on it etch it and process it and print it, and you know I might be able to do it in twenty four hours but I, I know Sean Star Wars can print five <laughs> in a, what was it an hour or something yeah, it's pretty amazing <laughs> but um I don't know it, it's um i I'm still figuring stuff out, and I certainly don't know everything and and I like it that way. I like that I don't know everything. <laughs> Yeah. Cuz it, it gives me a, yeah. yeah, a lot more that I have to learn and I I think um I'd be in trouble if I thought I knew everything too. Boy would not be born.
0: Yeah. yeah Yeah. absolutely absolutely well I think that's that's actually a a beautiful place to wrap up our chat I really like that and I just wanted to yeah to, to thank you again and to ask that maybe you let people know where they can follow you and and find out more about you and and your new adventures
1: well, I am on Instagram, and I'm known as One Chair. And One Chair is O N E C H A I R on Instagram. Based on the fact that I never want to supervise people again, so I want my <laughs> <a> One Chair Studio. <laughs> I want One Chair in my studio. Uh-huh. Right. I love <laughs> but it. But that's me. One. One
0: Chair. Yeah. Okay yeah excellent (laughs) excellent and then is there is there anything like on the horizon that you're particularly excited about or want to make sure people know about coming out
1: oh well I'm trying to prepare for a couple of shows in January I actually am showing at Wally Workman in Austin Texas during print Austin beautiful and or if you're in Tucson I'm at um davis Dominguez gallery which i love those guys they've been so sweet to me all these years
0: well well thank you so much again um this has been like just like a total pleasure and you were just great and open and i'm really looking forward to, (laughs) to sharing this so i'll i'll definitely be in touch again miranda i'm honored thank you so much well that's our show for this week Join me again next week when we're back with our new episodes, and we're starting out hitting the ground running with another bi-monthly bilingual episode with our friend and collaborator Ronaldo Zambrano and our guest Danny Gonzalez. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing from Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. We'll see you next week.